When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my good friend, Michael Walker. How you doing, Walker? Hello. And he is the co-host. I am also a co-host. My name is Mark Bigney. We are here to talk about board games today in a radical, radical departure. We always strive to uphold the same principles with which we founded this podcast, and that is to be the best Kingston-based hobbyist board game Gibbon-owned podcast that you are listening to at this moment. Nailed it. Thank you. And year on year, we aspire to that brass ring. Eventually, we'll get there. And But it, it's just like what the Ontario Board of Education always says. It's important to have principles. So we're going to talk about board games this week. First, we're going to talk about the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. We're then going to talk about the games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature topic. Our feature topic is a publisher spotlight, Mind Clash Games. So, Walker, what did we review last year? So one year ago... We reviewed Agricola. It is uh, one of the essential first, you know, very tight worker placement games that where you had to feed your workers. So the more workers you got, the more penalties you you had to take. And so the first feeling you would get would be, why would I get more workers when it essentially only feels like I'm taking actions to feed those <laughs> extra workers until, you know, the, the combos start racking in and it actually starts to pay itself off. And then it, and then near the end of the game, it does have that sort of mathematical, do I need that one extra worker for the yeah. last turn or am I going to get be better off, you know, just using the ones that I have? Well, in terms of workers, sadly, this is my chief criticism of Gorkula is that you always want the more workers because they're three extra points at the end of the game. The part where it gets brutally calculational is, well, I've got seven sheep. Do I get an extra point for getting an eighth, or do I want a marginal bore, or which one gives me the extra point? But, I, look, we've played Agricola several times since we reviewed it. It is absolutely part of, our, of regular rotation, especially since uh, Walker came to appreciate it as much as Caverna. Previously, Walker was bigger on Caverna than Agricola. I was bigger on Agricola than Caverna, again, because it's tighter. Uh, but now I think it's safe to say that, that Agricola is equally appreciated by both of us. It is in the swag canon. And it is, it's difficult to look back and remember the hobbyist landscape before Agricola because it set the standard for so many things. It introduced a decade long period of relentless worker placement games. We still get lots of them, but I think that the, the 
tempo has kind of slackened. It introduced an era of euros where you had to feed your workers, where there were serious resource constraints on you. And it basically revolutionized euro components with animeeples. Like before that, it, seriously, like it was cubes. Yeah. Yeah. It was cubes for everything. And uh, Agricola just basically, like, from Agricola to Meeple Source, that's, you know, straight line, no confusion about it. And it deserves absolutely all its accolades. I You can take any edition. The revised edition is fine. The yeah. basic, the, the original edition and is the fine. Fact, the fact that it came out with a 15-year anniversary edition. Which had its own production problems, which we don't necessarily fully endorse. No, but, yeah. uh, but still... Popular in the groups. We love other Uwe Rosenberg worker placement games, uh, especially if he's for Odin and Hallertau, I think, in terms of more recent output. But it is hard to deny the importance of Agricola, as well as just how fun it is still to this day. So that is what we reviewed a year ago today. Agricola by Uwe Rosenberg, published by Lookout Games, originally in 2007, but more latterly in its revised edition in 2016. With a billion expansions. Yes, any number of expansions, a whole bunch of add-on modules and decks. And Do you want minis in your quickly? You can have minis in your quickly. You want other boards? You can have other boards. They're just cosmetic, but you can have them. So, Walker, now on to the games we played last week. What'd you play last week? Speaking of worker placement, Mark, I played a game called Series a couple of times, designed by Joshav Sundstrom and published by Artipia Games. And I believe the hook in this one, which I found is interesting, is that there's sort of two types of workers. You have your leaders, which are your own. You have five of them, and they go out onto the board and populate workspaces. And even in a two-player game, those workspaces were tight. The second kind of worker are astronauts, and they're in a common pool. And they're going to be uh, activating your buildings, which are color-coded, and the astronauts are color-coded. You must pick the right color of astronaut, and you have to look over at your opponents and see what buildings they have left or how many of a certain building they have, because you want to make sure you're going to be able to activate your buildings. The other interesting part about that is that these dropships are coming in every turn, and they're populated with more astronauts, so they're going to be entering the system, and so you can sort of steer your building purchases based on what, you know, what the mix of astronauts going to be. It's like, oh, we're going to get a lot of gray this game. Well, I'll get more gray buildings that will increase the chance of me being able to activate these buildings. I am ready to be a complete and total hypocrite, or at least say something that makes me sound like a complete and total hypocrite. I wanted Ceres to lean more into the tableau building aspect of the game <laughs> because you're right. You're buying these buildings. The color matters. You get to upgrade the buildings and you get to kind of build your own economy. And it's graph that part is grafted onto a relatively pedestrian worker placement aspect. I didn't find the worker placement part of the game very interesting. I found the part of building your own tableau and activating it with the common workers vastly more interesting. And so I wanted it to be half the game. And it's not that it was overlong or bloated or anything. It's reasonably straightforward as far as things go, with one salient exception. And that is, I found, and again, this was more prevalent in the worker placement aspect, but it's still prevalent in, in the engine building aspect. There was a weird circularity with respect to a lot of the iconography. It's like, okay, I'm taking an action represented by the crane. Well, what does the crane let me do? Well, the crane lets me do this kind of conversion or activate the sort of shuttle action. Well, what's a shuttle action? Okay, well, this shuttle action means that... The so for a relatively straightforward economy of relatively straightforward resource conversion, it took me longer than it should have to really understand what was going on. I'm not sure if this is a core problem with the design or merely a problem with the way information was presented, but it certainly didn't make me positively inclined towards Ceres 
at first blush. And it served to really kind of obfuscate how to get from point A to point B. You know, there's this aspect of, this is the thematic aspect. Sci-fi games should really be about mechs if they can, if they can be. I, look, I've got, my, I've got my prejudices. I'm just laying it out flat on the table. Mining is not interesting. I feel, look, I don't, I, I would venture to say that a lot of miners might even be inclined to agree. Anyway, send all your angry miner hate mail to support theircanada.ca. And you send out mining uh, robots to various asteroids in and around Ceres. And that part was okay. But again, it was done through a rocket action, which is not an action. It's a it's an icon that shows up under other actions. And so it, it, ended, it ended up making things feel more sort of attenuated, more distant, more convoluted than they actually were. And again, it distracted me from the part that I actually liked, getting new cards and activating yeah, those cards. Yeah, that's what I mean. They had some very interesting ideas that never really got flushed out. Much like you said, like building your tableau, like this, you know, three-tier turning asteroid field that all you did was put out probes and it gave you income, right? Yeah. That, that's all it did. Yeah. It, if it was something a little bit more interesting with such crazy moving parts and yeah. and mechanisms to get out there, then it might have been something. I mean, something. Like, for example, it wouldn't have even needed to change that much about the, the core aspect of the asteroids. Maybe there's something we can only get from the asteroids, right? That, I think, would have provided an excellent motivating feature. As it was, you know, it's it's a, as I say, a pretty standard Euro conversion resource game in Saris. You know, I, I need to get a couple, uh, a couple ceramic. Okay, well... That asteroid could give me a couple of ceramic. This building could give me a couple of ceramic. This space could give me a couple of ceramic. Okay, I'll just go. There wasn't anything really special going on, except, again, I felt a little bit of ownership over my cards. I get to customize them a, a tiny bit. I got to, again, as you said, try to uh, try to accommodate the supply of astronauts coming in. I did a very poor job, and I felt the sting of that. And that part struck me as vastly more interesting. And so ultimately what you're left with in Ceres is a very generic sort of middle of the road experience without leaving much of an impression, sadly, which, which is a shame. I really like the, the publisher Artipia Games has done some really interesting stuff. I haven't played anything else by Gustav Sundström before, but it was largely forgettable. Agreed. It does have a nice buildup. It only lasts three turns. Your first turn goes very quickly. And then there's, like I said, with the more workers that, that uh, come into the system, the more buildings you get out, there's this huge buildup and then it, and it ends fairly quickly. So the timing and the tempo is nice, but ultimately there are better worker placement games than this. That is Ceres by Gustav Sundström, published by Artipia Games this year, pursuant to successful crowdfunding. Walker has a little Velcro patch. I do have, and on that note of components, it has this weird thing where it has a very nice sort of component track where you keep track of all your resources because it has one resource and you move it up this track, but then that has these other like credits and, and advanced iron. We're not going to use the track for that. Yeah. We're going to have tokens for that stuff. We don't want to use, you don't use, it's so weird. It was a little bizarre. It's true. I played Daybreak again. This is an Instagurus. This is my uh, cheeky term for an instant to Eurus, playing a game very shortly after reviewing it for the first time, which is always a mark of quality. I don't think there's ever been an instant Eurus where that wasn't uh, a definite vote in favor of a given game. Daybreak being the cooperative game about climate change by Matt Leacock and Matteo Menepasse. And uh, this definitely emphasizes everything that I commented on last time. It presents a very interesting universe of a lot of different incommensurate but very, very important tools to decarbonize. And in a tableau building game, 
in the vein of something like Terraforming Mars. It's good to have a nice variety of different effects and a nice variety of thematic explanations for those effects. And again, like every in-person playing of Daybreak, I was tempted to pull out my phone and scan one of the QR codes to find out what it had to say about uh, a given uh, technology that I didn't know anything about. So I got to learn something, which was wonderful. I maintain Daybreak is too easy. I'm not a huge fan of the way that it makes things harder. The way that, One of the key ways that it makes things harder is through these restriction cards that are either global or individual, and they basically just make you unable to pull some of the levers that exist in, in a game of Daybreak. That makes me feel like I'm playing less of a game, not that I'm playing more of a game. I have the same complaint for what it's worth in some of the higher difficulty levels in Spirit Island, for example. In some of the higher difficulty levels of Spirit Island, it's just you don't have more things to deal with. You just have fewer things you can do to deal with the things you need to do. Now, this is an exception rather than the rule. And there are other ways to make Daybreak harder. You can pick different factions to make things harder. You can start with fewer trees or fewer, fewer wa- less water. But suffice to say... Uh, that all told, I think it suffers in comparison to Pandemic in terms of its difficulty modification. I'm actually going to be recording an episode of Bloat this week with another comparison between Daybreak and Pandemic. Not that they're all that similar games, but just in terms of how uh, your comment about Daybreak was very good. You said that you, one of the things you didn't like about Daybreak was you felt it was rather random in terms of its distribution of cards and in terms of the environmental effects that you might suffer. And that is, I think, entirely legitimate. And what I think the it, it serves to highlight some of the differences between Daybreak and Pandemic. I think Pandemic is a superior design, but again, uh, for me, as someone who adores Pandemic, I think Pandemic is, again, one of those epic-making hobby designs uh, being second fiddle to Pandemic is is no problem at all. <laughs> so, thoroughly enjoyed my game of Daybreak, uh, even though I confess it is probably too easy for my taste, all told. But I stand by been, everything we said last week. I, too, have been playing Daybreak on Board Game Arena, which it, it, it's giving me this odd feeling because I'm playing another video game called Backpack Hero. And the similarities between these are just sort of weird. Really? Yeah, just because in Backpack Hero, you're trying different combos. It's like this time I'm going to try. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm trying the cleaver combo, or I'm trying the, the cleaver bra- combo, you or, the, or the brass knuckle combo, or all sorts of different ways you can make these weapons and items interact with each other. But you're under the scrutiny of of after you kill a wave of monsters, you're going to get a random assortment of of goodies oh i see much like daybreak you just say okay what cards am i going to get this turn and how how am i going to incorporate this into this combination i'm trying to do or am i going to much like you do in backpack hero trash everything and and use these new cards to go forward you know from that on yeah it's it's just this because you're playing both at the same time sort of in the background it's like this is very similar (laughs) interesting parallel i like it that is daybreak by cmyk games we got to play and stream a game called Raising Robots. This is designed by Brett Sobel and Seth Van Orden. I've talked about it before. This is published by Nouveau Games. And this time it was placed uh, placed with uh, uh, Warmboy and Sidewinder, who are both big uh, Wingspan fans. And by the end, uh, the, the uh, Warmboy who owns Wingspan would said that he would rather play this if, really? If, if given the opportunity, Sidewinder was the opposite. She still said, you know, Wingspan was the game. Mm-hmm. I do also enjoy this much more than I, I do Wingspan. There's definitely a comparison there, but but it is different in many ways. What you're doing is you are you have this line, because it's simultaneous play, because you can get through a game so much faster than you can of Wingspan, because everyone is doing their turn on their own 
on their own thing. You can see in the stream, you know, you sort of walk everyone through the first turn. And then from then on, all you're doing is everyone establishes the energy for the turn. And then you run through your own sort of systems. You're building these columns of robots that you can run as long as you've uh, rolled for the galaxy style picked that action or someone has uh, put energy into that action. And so you're hoping that there's energy there or you bump it up with battery and you're running these lines of robots and getting resources and improving your tableau. I'm very much looking forward to showing it to you. Yeah, Louis was speaking very, very highly about raising robots. I, I guess it's it's all the rage. It's all anyone's talking about, Walker. The, the artwork is exquisite. There is this giant deck of robots and every single one is different you have like your breakfast making robot or your foot massage robot or sports robot or camera robot and the artwork i have seen the cards they are aggressively charming it's very very well done so looking forward to playing more raising robots great little game on the topic of little walker i got to return to demon ship this is the 15 millimeter copy made to made for me by the Hanverker. This is a solo miniatures game designed by Malov and Blacksite Studios, and it is available in a printed version, but it's also available in a 3D printable version, and that is indeed the fodder for which uh, the Hanverker made me my own little twee copy. Normally, it's 28 mil scale, but at half size, you can put it into a tiny little tin. And additionally, the Hanverker, because he stumbled across them, has now made super deformed Doom miniatures. So imagine, if you will, a 15 millimeter super deformed demon or Doom bringer from Doom. They are so cute. It is marvelous. So I, I, I had to go back to uh, Malov's creation. And true to his word, after I played the first time and I commented that like many independent miniatures games, it absolutely needed a good player aid because there are spawning rules, AI rules, action rules, reaction rules. And of course, being an indie miniatures game, they're scattered across four different chapters. And so I, the, the last time I played without a player aid, I actually played right in front of a super wide monitor and I had four browser windows open. With all the relevant places. So I was either going to come up with my own player aid, but the designer said he was going to make his own. Sure enough, it is now available. And it is excellent. It has exactly the information I want. And uh, thus, it is the only thing that I need. Of course, now my printer doesn't work. But, <laughs> alas! <laughs> this time, I had to still had to play it in front of my computer, but I only needed one window open. So, progress! And there's a lot of dice rolling in Demonship, but it's the kind of dice rolling that I like. What it determines is the parameters of what's going to happen during the round, not whether or not a thing happens over the course of the round. So yeah, you throw a bunch of dice to determine how a room is set up. Sure, fine. But that just lays the stage for what's going to happen. And then you roll a whole bunch of dice to determine what the enemies are going to do. But all the actions of the enemies, all the reactions of the enemies, and all of your actions are deterministic in terms of their execution. And that is exactly how I prefer my buckets of dice to, well, speaking loosely, of course, buckets of dice is sometimes deployed as a technical term in the consim hobby field for uh, conflict resolution mechanism. But the, the kinds of decisions you're faced with in Demonship, not the deepest thing in the world, but certainly very satisfying. I can do action A, and then a monster will engage in reaction X. Can I do action A in such a way that I'll be reasonably safe from reaction X? Or I could do action B and suffer reaction Y. And again, since the consequences of these actions are deterministic, you end up with some interesting trade-offs. And so there's a little bit of a sense of scope. It's just the right length. It's super, super short, which for solo games, especially when the decision-making is satisfying, but not especially deep, that is exactly what you want. So you get to 
play with your little toy. The rules are straightforward. Decision-making is interesting. I really like Demonship. It's really well done. And I highly recommend that anybody in a position to give it a shot from the... If you've got a 3D printer, if you have things that you can kitbash or just use uh, generic minis for and just print up the terrain or even mock up the terrain... You, anybody who's done indie miniatures gaming before knows the, the, the tools and techniques that are required to deal with these kinds of products. I highly recommend it. It's, it's really quite interesting. Apparently, Malev is going to be doing a follow-up that's kind of sort of inspired by Demonship that's going to be about gladiatorial combat. It's going to be coming soon-ish, they say, on Black Side Studios. I'm very interested to see how that shakes out. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Demonship especially when it is incredibly adorable. <laughs> so thanks again to the Hanverker, whose generosity is as capacious as his skills. And thanks also to the designer for finally making a, 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 an excellent player reference available. It definitely facilitated my playings of Demonship, designed by Malav Shinobi, published by Blacksite Studios. So when the OGs get together, Mark, it is five of us. And five-player games we enjoy. One is Hyperborea. This is designed by Andrea Caravesio and Perluca Zizzi. Thank you. No problem. Put out by Asmodee here in North America. And it is a great troops on the map type game where you get to hire these menagerie cards that will improve your action selection. It's a bag builder. You're putting all these different colored cubes into the bag. You're going up tracks to get more cubes. You're fighting enemies to build up either ghosts or different uh colors of all the different enemies you're triggering terrain effects it's all there and in a short time and smooth play and very high tension because it's one of these the bag this particular type of bag building is you keep drawing until you empty the bag and you're drawing three cubes every time so when it gets to near the bottom if you only have one cube left then guess what you get one cube for that turn and so you're trying to time it just right you're trying to add cubes desperately to your bag. And then you have three and you're great. And you you know your next turn is going to be great. And then someone plays an ability and says, I'll give you this really cool extra cube. Isn't that nice of me? And now you're back to having one cube in your bag. And and the, and you and you resist the urge to strangle them. And and sometimes you can't. Walker, what I think you... <laughs> you're, you're referring to an effect that Dewey triggered a number of times, whereby he would get to draw three extra cubes from his bag and gift his neighbors with one cube draw. What I don't think you understand is, it is, in terms of tempo, roughly equal if you get a four-cube turn followed by a two-cube turn, or a three-cube turn followed by a three-cube turn. It may be less satisfying to reach into that bag and only have two cubes waiting for that turn. Anyway... Hyperborea is my favorite bag builder. It uses bag building the best. And what was particularly revealing about this play, because we played it a whole bunch of times, it's in the canon, it's one of our go-tos, everyone in the OG group, as you refer to it, very much enjoys it. It's not at its best with five, but it plays really well with five. And I'd, 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 pr I'd rather play it with three or four. I think it's better at those counts. But with, as you say, with five, it moves along at a pretty decent clip most of the time. And what I really like about the bag building is that, and this was very much manifested in this most recent play, it allows you to make mistakes. It gives you just enough rope to play suboptimally. Not so that you're going to be paralyzed and be unable to get anything done, but enough so that you can look through the mid-game and realize, oh, I need to correct. And then, of course, if you're like me, fail to do so. In fact, we both did that. Yes. We, were, we were both, it was fascinating. I, I'm sure a psychologist would, would make hay out of this. We would say things like, 
I really need to stop adding blue cubes to my bag. And then literally during the same turn, okay, I add two cube, blue cubes to my bag. And then everyone else that it was like, what? what? Like, I'm, I'm taking my turn. Leave me alone. Yeah, or I need this extra action that uses up these awful gray cubes that I don't need anymore and these blue cubes that I shouldn't have gotten in the first place. Instead, I'll get this one that uses red cubes. Yeah. That? Yeah, 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 yeah. We were, and and as a consequence, we had, and this is this sometimes happens, but not often, we had too many cubes and not enough things to do with them. Frequently, the opposite problem is true. This was partially a function of our own stupidity, and this was also partially a function of the variable map setup, because on the board, you mentioned that you get to trigger a map effect. It's one of the great things about Hyperborea. It's one of the ways you do combos. Great timing aspect to that. Absolutely. There was a central hex that almost everyone occupied at one point or another. It was a charnel house that generated a lot of cube generation. And we would all go in and out. It was a huge revolving door of corpses. That's basically what was happening at the, the hex in the center. And as a consequence, we all had a lot of cubes. Some of us made better decisions than others about how to make those cubes. <laughs> Agreed. And again, I think this is the sign of good decision making. We had to make some strategic uh, choices on top of our tactical maneuvering about how best to balance our economy. I balanced my economy really, really badly, and I paid for it. Did I? Was I locked out of the game? Was I unable to do things? No, but I definitely felt the consequence of my bad decisions. That balancing act is one of the things that I look for in a good hobby game, one of those perennials that you pull out year after year. Hyperborea, for me, absolutely qualifies. And that is how I like bag building to be done, so... Still huge, huge fans of Hyperborea, and it's, it's one of the reasons why I keep you know, putting it in the bag month after month after month. And the expansion is fantastic as well. It introduces these black and white cubes, which very much uh, increases the puzzle element of the game and how to manipulate uh, getting more cubes out of the bag and what is in your bag. And a whole bunch of stuff that is not as good. In point of fact... Uh, as we were as we were tearing down the game, a number of people started pointing to various components that I never include in the game. Well, what's that? What's that? Oh, well, that's relics. They're not very good. Oh, those are leaders. I'm not. I think we're gonna have to show them. I don't know that you've ever tried them. We I, did. I, the I, one oh, game we. Had oh, added you, you did. Yeah. yeah. I think next time we play Hyperborea, we're gonna have to show them those components so they never ask again. It's true. It's not that they're that bad. It's just that Hyperborea is a wonderful game, and the black and white cubes are a brilliant addition to the game, and the other aspects aren't as good. Because even in the core game, before you even add the expansion, one uh, chief difficulty with Hyperborea that's been observed by a lot of the fans is it's the Terramistica problem. The factions don't seem very well balanced. It is what it is. And I'm willing to deal with it. I'm willing to live with that. I like the game enough. But I think that once you start adding in yet more of the unbalanced toys, unlike my comments about the Revive expansion, which seemed to balance some of the minor imbalances in the economy, my perception is that some of the other stuff in the Hyperborea expansion, Light and Shadow, that we do not use, uh, just make the problem worse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's the problem. <laughs> so that's Hyperborea, Andrea Kiervasio, and Perla Kizitsi, originally published by Asterian. Back before Asmodee swallowed everyone in 2014. Lastly, for me, there's just a few games I, I'll just mention quickly. Playing lots of games on Board Game Arena, Martian Dice, NAR. NAR is so great on Board Game Arena. Mm. And it was a, just a, it was a week of just playing games over. Like not and that's something I not normally I don't do, playing games twice in a week. Well, one game we played together on Board Game Arena was Valbara. Valbara was designed by Olivier Cipierre, published by, well, it says Studio H here, but I think it's Studio H. Teach the controversy. So Valbara was recommended to us by a listener who uh, 
put it under the sort of broad category of action selection drafting, kind of in the, the mold of Citadels, I'm not sure that's the most accurate way to put it. Uh, it, it feels very much to me like a blind bidding game. Effectively, everyone's got the same deck of cards. You've got a hand of a subset of those. Everyone plays one simultaneously. They're revealed. And then what you do is in order from lowest number to high number. Again, a great controversy. Is a low number better for initiative or a high number better for initiative? People have strong opinions. You then take a land card and the land cards are what give you points. And there are special abilities associated with the various leaders but never in such a way that I was seriously concerned with what other people were going to play, and never really in such a way that my primary focus was on the toys of the leaders. It was pretty much a case of, I look at the lands that are available, do I care a great deal about which one I get? I do, I play my lowest card. Do I not care at all about the land that I get? Okay, I'll play the leader that gives me the most points. Yeah, but I think maybe what they're trying to allude to is if you start card counting and, and remembering all of the leaders that the other players have played, maybe. and then therefore you can justify, yeah, I am not that type of player, nor do I ever want to be, but all the power to them. I didn't, I enjoyed it for what it was. It was a quick little card game. You are trying to pair up uh, the leader special abilities with the different types of lands that you're collecting, then that you do all sorts of different things. Some of them trigger off the lands and then do their own thing. It was okay. Yeah. I, I I definitely have a better sense of it playing in person because I think that Valbara would... My estimation of how good Valbara is and how much I'd be likely to play would matter a lot based on how much, it, how much time it takes in real life, right? So Nar is super quick and breezy in both real life and in board game arena. And it absolutely is worth its, I don't know, 25 to 30 minutes when playing in, in real life. Uh, Nar at 45 to 60 minutes would be considerably less appealing. Similarly with Valbara, I, I, I need to get a feel for it. I, I'm, I'm not really good at translating Borgi Marine into real life durations, but I wasn't particularly grabbed by playing online, but if it's only about 20, 25 minutes in, in real life, I, I, I'd be willing to play it, but it wasn't, uh, it didn't strike me immediately as one of the, one of the top tier fillers released in the past few years. And that is Valbara by Olivier Cipierre. Available on Board Game Arena, if you're so inclined. Lastly, we went back to Septima. Specifically this time, we were playing Septima with Shapeshifting and Omens, the pack-in expansion from the crowdfunding fulfillment, and that is packed in with the Deluxe Edition, which is what we have. And this time, we were also playing the full game. Now, one of the things is, and we'll be talking more about this later on in the topic, I was fooled, I was deceived, Walker. Any other publisher, pretty much any other publisher, who tells me in the rulebook, it's like, don't play the full game your first game. Play the basic game a couple times until you're ready. You're not ready yet. You take baby steps. Yeah. Your little I, baby, stay in baby land. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look at that and I ignore it, and I decide, based on the rules of the full game, whether it's that whether that's the game I want to play. And, you know, nine times out of ten, the answer is yes. When Mind Clash tells me that, I was willing to take them at their word. Then I ended up feeling fooled. <laughs> because the base game... It feels like a neutered experience. The full game feels better. There's more going on. There's more trade-offs. There's more reason to go and do things. There's toys that get introduced in the form of spells. And the expansion in terms of shape-shifting was, you know, certainly manageable in terms of complexity. We're not talking about huge leaps in terms of complexity, but we are talking about specifically in terms of the full game experience, not strictly speaking the shape-shifting. We are talking about a significant opening up of the decision space. And so I would recommend anyone who's going to go play Septima, who is experienced with, you know, 
medium heavy euros to ignore their advice and go straight to the to full game i know there are so many people think of course mark that's what we did we're not silly it's like i'm sorry we're, I, not, we're not babies we're not <laughs> well walker we don't we don't <laughs> want to insult people who prefer the base game that's perfectly reasonable people could like whatever they like it's true but the the, the claim preferring the base game doesn't make you a baby but but by the same token the rule books claim of Oh, nobody's ready for the full game straight out the gate. That's not true. <laughs> uh, all of that having been said, I still don't feel particularly cool good about Septima. I still felt like the ratio of time that I that that players were doing things versus just managing a whole bunch of other steps and it was was way too low. And what I was doing didn't seem like it was manifesting on the awesome theme or particularly interesting in its own right. Yes, you, by the end of it, you're yeah, you're playing all these cards. You're just you know taking your free move and and moving around this map that really didn't mean anything. You're just trying to stay near the middle so you wouldn't get hunted. Yep, doing minimal actions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even know. I don't. Yeah, it was like honestly, it felt a tiny little bit. This is a forced analogy, but just in terms of, of reference. I had the same vague sense of dissatisfaction with what I was doing in Septima that I did in Ceres. But Ceres, by contrast, is much quicker and cleaner. And with and with much less upkeep every round. Whereas in Septima, Septima, I think, makes a cardinal sin in terms of round structure of Euros specifically, but games in general. If you're going to have everyone do, say, four or five things over the course of a given turn, there is a world of difference between me saying, it's my turn, I do my things one through five, my turn is done, versus, okay, everyone do one, okay, everyone do two, everyone do three, especially when elements one, two, four, and five aren't really actions, they're just things that the game is taking care of, right? I understand why Septima structured it, uh, structured the way that it did. You would have to redesign the game to make it work the way I wanted to, but the, the problem is that makes it feel so tedious and much longer than it would otherwise. So it's just you're constantly losing focus with what you're actually doing. You end up feeling like you have less agency, even though you're accomplishing the same amount of stuff. And again, the theme is wonderful. The theme is a septima that you're running a coven of witches. You've got to go heal the townsfolk, but by the same token, they're distrustful of you. And you have to manage their distrust of you. And at the same time, you want to try to make sure that the witches who do get captured, either from the system itself or from the, the, the actual players, that you manipulate the trials so that they get acquitted and then they come join your coven. That's great! The idea of helping the people who hate you and try to do it in a, in a, in a sort of low-key way with elements of politics. A lot of promise that I did not feel realized. No, and it has this interesting sort of hook where if players play the same card, you get a benefit like from the bottom of the card, but then you get more suspicion thrown on you and then there's sort of a dummy player that you have to cycle every turn and if you match them you also get suspicion it was weird yeah honestly there are two things that i think it's a bit frustrating because septima has a lot of promise there are elements there that are like they're just kind of drowned out by a failure to realize the theme and a, a structure that i think doesn't lend to its strengths. I would suggest two changes in terms of a redevelopment of Septima, not that this is ever going to happen. Number one is, as I said, the round structure needs to change so that I do one through five, not that we waste our time resetting every time. And the other is, I think it should be a negotiation game. There are situations where uh, the game Septima is built, about collu uh, built around collusion, but I don't have anything to offer anyone, and they don't have anything to offer me. It's like, okay, I'm going to shapeshift this turn. Anyone else want to shapeshift with me? It's like, uh, 
I was planning on doing it next turn, and I don't need the sharing bonus. Leave me alone. Like, <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> There's no, if there were opportunity for weird betrayal, like, oh, I thought you were going to collude with me, but you're not. Ah, or it, it, there, there was a few times that that could have happened. Like, remember, there's a lot of turns where I was in trouble, where I would have been hunted had I, had I played the same card as someone else. Right, but in those contexts, we had no interest. You had no interest in broadcasting what you were doing, and so I had no way to know what you were doing to try to uh, harass you if I were so inclined. Maybe, but a few of the times I said what I was going to do. Why? Like, I. <laughs> I just no. I'm, I'm sincerely curious. This isn't me being. Like, a why joke. did I say? I, I'm not sure at the time. Okay, I, I'm just saying that if someone had played the same card I did, then I would have been caught and I would have lost one of my. Sure. Lives. Yes. And had it been a negotiation game, you could have been in a position to bribe them so as not to do that. Yeah. There would have. There could have been some dynamic about this collusion, rather than again the the the, the prospect of collusion. And failing to collude and incentives to collude is one of those elements of the theme that I that I was really looking forward to in Septiman. I didn't feel it was manifest. I think what I gave up my action was only because I had said, maybe someone had asked, you know, well, why don't we do this this turn? It's like, well, no, I need to do this this turn. Or, ah, or, okay. Or I can't do that because I'll get caught. I'm going to do this instead. Sure. Or we won't, sure. why don't we do this next turn type thing? Yeah, if the game, if Septima had been structured around circumstances into which it would have been in our interest to predate on you in that way, and or you could have been in a position to offer something so as to force us to cooperate with you, that I think would have been a more interesting player-led dynamic. Agreed. Instead, it was it was just very mechanical. Very procedural. Procedural. You, you just spend a lot of time doing upkeep and maintenance, and part of it is just a quirk of the structure, I maintain, but alas... That is Septima, specifically with the Shapeshifting and Omens expansion, designed by Robin Hegedus, published by Mind Clash Games this year, pursuant to successful crowdfunding, and then we will never talk about Mind Clash again. Those are the games we played last week. Now we take a quick break to pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and luxuriating in the one and only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. And now, back to the show and some news that does not matter. Mark. Walker. Phantom Division is bringing up a new project on GameFound. Uh, I'm not not sure how it's going to be how it's going to work out. This is Phantom Division RL, so I'm not sure if if we sort of drive around discs and bang into each other, or have they developed spacecraft and we're going to go to other planets and get in firefights. No, this is uh, Phantom Division Real Life. This is yeah. the reality show version. Oh, okay. Where there's just cameras on 24 seven, and you have these sci-fi operatives talking about how Linda didn't label her food properly in the fridge again. Oh, Linda, Linda, Linda. She does all the time. No matter how many times you tell her, she's she's just not going to do it. We've tried. Yeah, yeah. 
So I look forward to another round of the discussion as to whether or not they're using AI art. So yes, it is Fam Division Reloaded, and uh, we'll be back on GameFound, and let's maybe they'll come up with an explanation this time now with no AI art. Who knows? Or at least they'll talk about it. Like, look, yeah, we 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 are of the position that disclosure and transparency is very helpful for the hobby. We've I hope we've made that clear by uh, modeling in terms of disclosure of review copies, disclosure of personal relationships with other uh, designers and publishers where they where they show up. Disclosure is helpful. Disclosure is better than not, suffice to say. So all that is on GameFound right now is the preview page. Despite the lack of information at this stage, we're still very enthusiastic because of its relationship to Seal Team Flicks, the only game that matters. So we're looking forward to more details to to come in the fullness of time. Also on GameFound is a game called 1793 Patriots and Traitors. This is a multiplayer card-driven game about the French Revolution. And I love me games about the French Revolution. Those of you who've been listening to me for a while know that I'm a big, big fan of La Révolution Française, La Patrie en danger, 1791-1795. And this is, it's the name of the game, Walker. What yeah, do you want? Yeah, okay, okay. So I will not be subject to I, language I, I shaming. Said, I said nothing. The gall that you would have... Anyway, this this appears to be a much simpler game than La Patrie en Danger, which is a you know four to five hour multiplayer experience. Uh, but I'm very enthusiastic about any kind of card driven multiplayer game that is very much my jam when it seeks to be uh, redolent with historical details. And I'm very very enthusiastic to see what comes out of it. So I backed the 1793 Patriots and Traders on GameFound. John Cloudus of Smallbox Games uh, broke into public consciousness in a big way with one of his most successful releases over 10 years ago called Omen, A Reign of War. It's been published by a couple of different publishers over its lifespan, and uh, John Cloudus, with his company Smallbox Games, has reacquired the rights and is going to be crowdfunding a series of standalone, redeveloped versions of Omen next year. I'm very much looking forward to that. Omen is a fascinating design. John John Cloudus is a very, very interesting designer, and a lot of his card games, he does two-player card games. It's his thing. It's his shtick. It's his his deal. And they tend to use, have very interesting multi-use functions of how to use the cards. I'm a fan of the North, I'm a fan of Omen, and I'm very, very curious to see what he does with Omen. That will be the next version of Omen. Look for it sometime next year. Certainly more details to follow. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to our topic, and that is Mind Clash Games. Walker, what comes to mind for you when you think of Mind Clash Games? Intricate, puzzly, interesting, well-produced games. That was perfect, Walker. There you go. Thank you all for joining us. <laughs> yes. Uh, so what was your first uh, Mind Clash game that you tried? I think it was Anachrony. I think it was Anachrony for me, too. And and just the premise of anachrony just made you want to play it. It was it was you're going to go back in time and you're gonna steal resources from the past. And you're going to <laughs> No, no, it's the other way around. The past is gonna steal resources from the future. That's it. Anyway, there's time travel. <laughs> yes. And there and there's resource thievery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and don't and, don't think about it too hard. The time paradox will drive exactly. you mad. Yeah. And if you don't somehow by the end of the game replace that, there's going to be some sort of weird paradox stuff happening. And so you have to manipulate everything in a way that time doesn't get distorted. Yeah, normally it's the case that when someone uses a whole bunch of words to cover up for what they want as a loan, I actually had this experience recently. Someone sent me like a page-long email explaining what was going to happen. I'm like, "Mm, that's a lot of words for interest-free loan. 
crowdfunding is actually much the same way. It's like you get to be a, a participant in the nah, interest-free loan. Uh, <laughs> eff- effectively, that's what anachrony has you do to yourself. But normally I'm, I'm skeptical, but call it time travel and I'm there for it. Yeah, anachrony was the first uh, Mind Clash game that I'd ever played. And I got it in trade, as I recall. And uh, mostly I'm a sucker for giant stompy mechs. And layer onto that solid worker placement. And I was completely, I was completely sold. Uh, this is, it's a hard, it's a hard genre. It's a hard like niche that Mind Clash has more or less set itself up for. And that niche is mostly like two and a half hour long euros, right? It's hard to do that well, certainly for my tastes. Because very often I was like, eh, make it shorter, make it shorter. That's a common I have for most things. And uh, yet the fact that they've been so consistently successful in terms of a lot of, their, the, a lot of their designs has been very, very impressive. So their first two games were Anachrony and Trucarion, and they both sort of had the same sort of concept. They were worker placement games where not only did you go to a place that had an action, they were sort of ranked as opposed to what order in which players got there. Right. Right. So the first person in usually got a better action and then they just sort of went downhill from there. And some were, you know, uh, arguably better than others. And some of them were like sort of time dependent. It's like, well, normally this would be good in the first turn, but I'm going to go to this lesser spot because this particular turn, I need this one thing. Another aspect of, there are two more aspects of commonality between Tracarion and Anachrony. I like Tracarion just fine. Uh, I, I vastly prefer Anachrony. Uh, Tracarion was, I think, my least favorite uh, Mind Clash design before we played Perseverance. More on that later. Um, they have different kinds of workers. I, by and large, I really like worker placement games where you have different kinds of workers if you can do it well. Sometimes it just gets too restrictive and too convoluted. But I think both Tracarion and Anachrony do it very, very well in terms of having specialized workers. And as well... Again, more so than other kinds of euros, not to a, not to a great extent, but they tended to be very, very successful at bringing together a couple of mechanical elements, but a lot also with the graphic design to sell a really good theme. And I very much appreciated the setting in Tricarion. They they carried it through very well, sort of pseudo Victorian, not really uh, stage magicians, uh, and Anachrony, of course, with its re- like they go so far in Anachrony. You know, every faction has its own, like, political ideology about how to run the post-apocalypse. And I admire that kind of, uh, of, of well, flights of fancy, really, because you don't have to go into that level of detail. You just be like, well, we're the green faction. We want the future to be green. <laughs> Instead, we have these, like, well, we've designed these mechs to represent our philosophy. It's like, wow, that's that's a level of impressive level of detail. Good for you. And the, the graphic design in both these games are great. Uh... And the and lots of player aids because these yeah, games, but you kind of need them. Yeah, I was gonna say these games like right out right Hope out, you right, like out of the, right out of the gate. Uh, they they brought the complexity up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, honestly, I, it, I when I think of the iconography for Mind Clash games, for me, it's universally of the type that is acceptable but not ideal. Which is to say, you're probably not going to be able to intuit what the icon means, but once you've been told what it means, you're fine, and that's okay. Uh, and given that they've been so aggressive in terms of uh, more and more as time goes on, actually, of supplying you with more and more player aids of a quality nature, uh, it's hard to begrudge them that too much. Like, but there is going to be a lot. Now, sometimes it get, it, it kind of collapses under its own weight, though, in that, and this is another thing that Mind Clash does a lot of, with uh, some recent exceptions, 
but they tend to have with their crowdfunded projects, I'm thinking especially of, of Anachrony and Tricarion, a whole bunch of optional mini expansions and modules. And then, of course, when you add on the fact that they then tend to have big box expansions that both Tricarion and Anachrony had, then you have a whole bunch of different reference works to cross, and that's uh, that's awkward. <laughs> then you have to pretty much go to BoardGameGeek and print something up and hope that there's some good o- omnibus reference. Yeah, when you have to first look at an index to see which book you need yep. to look at to find the thing you're looking for. Not ideal. No. Which is one of the reasons, I'm jumping around chron- chronologically here, it's one of the reasons why I was so pleased with Voidfall. Because Voidfall is remarkable. Despite how sprawling it is in terms of the amount of stuff, it doesn't have add-on modules. You're either playing competitively or you're playing cooperatively. There's no other... You choose a scenario, sure, but it's not like, well, are you playing with the Pioneers of New New Dawn module? Are you playing with this module or the Doomsday module, like, like with Anachrony? Again, a game I like, but you start to sprawl a little bit. Voidfall, despite how sprawling it could have been, manages to remain relatively focused in comparison because the moment you picked your game mode, that's it. You're pretty much done in terms of having to, to worry about these things. And, it, and additionally, it feels strange to talk about Voidfall being focused at all, given how big it is, but it, it manages that, that task. And of course, I've, I've talked a lot about how much I adore Voidfall's reference book. It is comprehensive, with one minor exception, and you, it has everything you need, and it's perfectly comprehensible. Agreed. Let's get back to where we're supposed to be. After Anachrony came... Oh, no, come well, on. Um, that was unnecessary. That was I gratuitous. Know. I know. Yeah, okay. Come Con- on. Content. <laughs> All right. What, mockery of me specifically? <laughs> what? So after Anachrony <laughs> came what, came what we call Cerebra. The Cerebria, in- the inside Cerebria, world. Cerebria, the inside world. And this was just far left court, right? Oh, yeah. It was gonzo weirdness. Weird, yeah. Like not only the game itself, but it's like a team based. Yeah. Theme. Team based, kind of, sort of area majority, but not really. Uh, <laughs> and, and you're and you're doing all the emotions of the human mind with and, wild illustrations and and freaky miniatures. Yeah, it, like everything. That's one of the reasons why I love Cerebria so and much. And they have these weird towers that you're building. Oh that, yeah, that are what? <laughs> <laughs> it's it is a it is a rep- it is a phallic representation. <laughs> Of an individual's growing sense of identity. Cerebria is gonzo in all the best possible ways. The th- that theme hasn't been done that well before. It's a blend of mechanisms that you don't tend to see. It's it's like deck construction, hand management, area majority, team-based, special power manipulation. Woof. And it's one of those games, and I, this is a very particular vibe, and I'm using, uh, no pun intended, actually there are vibes in, <laughs> in Cerebria, my apologies. That was awkward. It's a very particular vibe. And that vibe is the game that takes an hour to explain, and then you play in 90 minutes. It's very particular. Compared to the games that came before it, this one plays much, much quicker. Absolutely. And it's one of those things where, kind of like Tribune, kind of like Senji, you have to say to everybody, okay, look, 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 there's a lot going on, and I realize you might have certain expectations about how long a game like this might last. Do not give in to those expectations. It's going to be quicker than you thought it would. Cerebria is, it's its weird. On paper, I should hate it. Because normally that balance I don't like. You know, a 45 to 60 minute rules explanation coupled by nine, followed by 90 minutes of gameplay. Normally I don't like that. There's very specific terminology you have to do. If you get sloppy with terminology, you could call like four different things upgrade. 
And that will drive your rules explainer mad because the question that I would always get as a rules explainer is how do upgrades work? And it turns out they weren't talking about upgrades. They were talking about something else. They were talking about the intensify action or they were talking about something else. Anyway, but I, uh, Cerebria was my favorite mind clash design. I love Cerebria. It's so restrictive. You want to play it with four. That's the player count. (laughs) Maybe two, maybe, but then you're kind of double handing. Uh. I love Cerebra. It's like nothing else, and it's really well done. I, I don't get to play it enough, par- yeah. partially because it's so restrictive. A heavy Euro, four players only, massive rules explanation. Great theme. Great theme, lovely components, but gonzo arc direction in the best possible way. Yes. You got illustrations that represent feelings, and yeah, so good. Yeah, yeah. Cere- <sighs> If you if if any of those things sound appealing to you, then you should absolutely go for it. So at that point, and in 2018, I think is is to my mind was kind of peak mind clash because at that point they published Tricarian Anachrony and Cerebria, not a dud in the lot. Well, there's the Cerebria card game, but it was kind of a, a lark off to the side anyway. And then uh, Anachrony Chess, which was also yeah, they did some of, yeah, yeah, they yeah. did some side stuff, sure. Um, and another thing that, that's, that's worth stressing, we don't really have, we're not really in a position to comment yet because the, um, retail version of Voidfall hasn't hit yet. So it's a little bit in flux, but another striking thing about Mind Clash games that was absolutely true for the first, first three designs. And I hope follows through their games are shockingly less expensive than much of their competitors. When they hit retail, when you get the retail versions, which are a hundred percent playable, I've joked that there are two ways to play Anachrony with the giant mechs and wrong, but, I mean, to be frank, I, I, I'd much ha- be happier. I remember the retail version when it was coming out for like 45 Canadian dollars for the base game of an act. That is a lot of game and a lot of components for not much cash. We're now in a position where retail euros typically go for an excess of 100. And I, for, to a large part, Mind Clash CGE also, their prices seem stuck in the, the, the 2010s rather than in the, the, the 2020s. Anyway, it's another it's another aspect of, of Mind Clash's publishing that I've appreciated. Their Kickstarters are expensive and loaded to the gill with plastic. No two ways about it. But their retail offerings, the, the, the quote-unquote stripped-down ones, tend to be vastly more reasonable. And I applaud that. So then there's a bit of a gap. Yeah. Well, they published uh, the Fractures of Time expansion in 2020 to Anachrony. And for what it's worth, that is our preferred way to play because it really doubles down on the time travel theme. But then again, as we said, you pay the costs of more references to collate and uh, a, a dense game gets yet denser. Yeah, more decisions before, you know, you open the box. What are we, yep. How are we going to play it this way? Yep. You look at all of these different little add-ons and boxes and stuff and then you're just like... Eh, it's worth it. I'm willing it to power is, through. Is, but, but yeah, saying, the temptation is there. I get yeah. They also published the 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 big box expansion to Tricarion. We did not pursue that because again, Tricarion's not our, our preferred of the of, of the Mind Clash jams. Uh, and then they started to experiment with non crowd funded uh, publications. Yeah, they came out with Astra. It was a very short little sort of astronomical game, and then came Perseverance. Yeah, Castaway Chronicles. Episode one and two. Thank you for the full title. You gotta, you gotta wait for it. <laughs> now, like on paper, this sounds interesting, right? Yeah. You, yep. you get to this island, and you, and the first one, you're like sort of, you know, fighting through these dinosaurs, and you gotta try to make base camp and 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 just survive and not be eaten. And then volume two, you're like 
incorporating these beasts in in part of your your village and your and getting tech and you're slowly learning to live on this new island yeah again uh very so i i actually put perseverance and septima kind of a, as a piece uh in that there is the thematic promise of some potential collusion with other players while at the same time competing with them coupled with a political backdrop because Perseverance also relies on this political backdrop. In Septima, it's the, the, the witch trials. In Perseverance, it's struggle for control over the, over the nascent colony. And uh, we, we both did not enjoy Perseverance. You know, bland, burdensome. Uh, uh, High squ- manipulation of, of components with yep. little payoff. Yep, yep, absolutely. And for, for me, speaking personally, it was a crushing disappointment because... In my head, prior to this, there were pretty much two publishers that did heavy Euros with an almost 100% successful track record, Mind Clash and Splatter. And up till that point, as far as I was concerned, they'd done no wrong. And then they did Perseverance. And I, it, was, it was just sometimes when, when it's not even the weight of expectation, but it's just the, 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 the weight of past successes it's like every time I, I see a new design by some of my favorite designers, I'm like, oh, is this going to be the one that's a stinker? <laughs> Please don't let this be the one that's a stinker. Yeah, and the, and the promises made, like, the, oh, there's going to be this campaign system, and you can link all these games together. And Seamlessly you, and easily, yeah, right? And, it's not really and, a campaign, but you're going to be able to transition from one to the other. And, and tell this whole story, and yeah. it'll be great. <laughs> it wasn't. It was not. And all of our fears, because we both had this concern. I remember talking about it on Pledge of Indifference. We were both concerned that it was going to fall prey to some of the rules problems in series games. This happens in war games all the time. Even whether they're heavy or light, you know, and undaunted. Wait, is this the one where it works like every other game in the series? Or is this the one that's different? With Perseverance Castaway Chronicles, it was exactly that. It's like, okay, I remember that one of them works like A and one of them works like B. I don't remember which one's which. Is this the rule that got changed, or is this the rule that's the same between the both? So suddenly, the fact that 90 to 95% of the rules could be the same makes it a problem rather than a virtue. Yeah, and they came out, you know, together. So yeah. that even even worse. Yeah, yeah. And again, not that... I don't think either... Speaking, speaking for myself, I didn't hate Perseverance. No. It's mostly, again, the weight of expectation, the weight of past successes, the disappointment is a manifestation of the theme. That's why I speak with such disappointment and borderline bitterness. Not because it was truly execrable, but mostly just because it was workmanlike and mediocre. What's what's the gender neutral term for workmanlike? Worker-like? And eh, that, that might be misleading. Anyway, I should just retire that word from my vocabulary then. It was just pedestrian and, and uh, uninspired, which is truly sad. And I was ready to think that this was just like, okay, maybe mine class. I'm putting trying to put a narrative and a pattern where there shouldn't be one. Right, so in my head, I was like, "Okay, Mind Clash was a top tier publisher, and now they're just like every other publisher. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're bad." And Voidfall was announced. I'm like, "Eh, whatever." David Search say, "I liked Anachrony, and Anachrony's great, but he's also done a lot of other stuff I don't like." Voidfall, huh? Yeah, okay. And I was not ready to like Voidfall half as much as I did. <laughs> and and you can see there is some similarities as well with Voidfall and Septima. You can see how some, I think maybe they're developed together. Type thing because you bo- in both games you have this set of cards and it's this huge decision on and you know how many turns are in the round mm-hmm. and you and you get to decide beforehand it's like okay these are the these are the five cards for five turns I want to play well, I see what you're saying and and so you're planning it out and so you know what you're doing I there is a little similarity there 
I guess. I don't know if they were developed at the same time, and presumably there's some cross-pollination from the various designers that work at Mind Clash. But we reviewed Voidfall uh, a couple months ago when it came out. Uh, Voidfall crawled under my skin in a way that I did not anticipate. I love Voidfall. It's marvelous. It is going to feature prominently, uh, I think, in our uh, in our end-of-year recap episode. And especially on the heels of Perseverance, and given the fact that Nigel Buckle doesn't have much of a publication history, granted, he worked in Imperium, which is one of my favorite deck builders of the past few years, but I just wasn't ready for how good Voidfall was. And once again, you get... Again, I haven't seen the retail version uh, too closely yet, but Voidfall, you can... Get all the metal components if you want with plastic spaceships and double-layered everything and this, that, and the other. Or if you don't want or need any of that, you can just get tokens and that's fine. And I really appreciate that kind of scope. Yeah. We already talked. I don't want to go too much into Voidfall. We've talked about it already in the show. Lots of fantastic things. Determinative combat, which makes the game play very quickly. Yep. Uh, Very interesting resource system of where you're improving the planets with guilds and population, which set your resources, uh, uh, different technologies that you can get, uh, goal cards that you have to incorporate into your strategy. You have to get uh, get the card, and then it has to be played with a certain other card in order for you to play it. Lots of things going on. And let me just focus on one more thing, and I've said this before about Voidfall, but I think it serves as a nice contrast to Septima. There's hardly any round maintenance compared to actual play. In Voidfall, there's no, there, there's hardly any upkeep. There's some, sure, but in comparison to you actually doing your actions, there's no, there's no resource production phase. If you produce resources, you produce them because you chose to. That's an action you took. Same thing with combat. Same thing with chasing after. Pe- it's anyway. It's fine, they, they, but they give me the same sort of feeling at the end of the round where you have this sort of already predetermined, the hunter's going to attack. You're going to get attacked. Oh, that's by, fair. You're right. Right? And it's like, it usually ends up being nothing or being being devastating, right? One or the other. That's right? fair. Either you've made a mistake or or it means nothing at all. That's fair. You, you and I have, have talked about the counterattack in, in Voidfall, the skirmish, as it were, from the Voidborn. Uh, and, you know, we disagree as to its its relative uh, value, but you're right. That is one commonality between Voidfall and Septima. And then there's their upcoming Ironwood, which is, again, going to be a direct-to-retail experience. It's not going to be crowdfunded. It's going to be a two-player card-battling type thing. I'm cautiously optimistic. I like those kinds of games. We'll see what happens. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, if you look at even... If you just look at the games that they produce that we like, you know, specifically Anachrony, Cerebria, and Voidfall even if you leave out Tracarion, which we enjoyed, but it was, wasn't one of our favorites. That's an impressive pedigree over the course of a, a publisher that's basically been in the business for eight years. Agreed. Since since the publication in 2015 of Tracarion. That alone is impressive. I mean, yeah, we haven't been huge fans of the rest, and there's absolutely similar consistent to, to, to quality in terms of heavy Euro designs, which, unfortunately, in the rest of the market, I seldom see, personally. Yeah, I'm looking forward to all their upcoming stuff. I like how they're cycling through different designers. Even, even Perseverance Castaway Chronicles episodes 3 and 4? You're looking I forward am. to that, Walker? I am. Really? I, maybe, they, maybe they've maybe they heard. Like I, I, It doesn't sound as though it was well received by everyone. Yeah, my perception is that the enthusiasm was much more mood, muted compared to their other stuff. And, and maybe they noticed that. So maybe they're going to make some changes. Maybe they're going to readdress some things. Maybe it's going to be different. One can hope. One can hope. 
Well, suffice to say, we will be looking at the future output of Mind Clash with enthusiasm. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for this episode of So Very Wrong About Games. We genuinely appreciate any time you decide to spend with us. If you'd like to reach out and get in touch, you can find our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send and we'll get back to you if we can. We hope to see you again soon, and we also hope that you take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.